the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today on the program, we'll talk with Mike Howell, Senior Advisor for Executive Branch Relations at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the Supreme Court that has taken up the president's effort to end DACA. It's not a, a question as to whether or not it should be ended, but rather the procedure that the, was uh, selected by the president, whether or not that is valid. So the larger question has, will not be addressed by the Supreme Court. And a decision isn't expected until June, but we'll talk with Mike Howell about uh, oral arguments that were held earlier today. We'll also talk with Jeff uh, Lucas, author of Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture. Well, last night I had my first opportunity to rehearse with a Portland singing Christmas tree. I wish you could have been with me, all of you. I wish you all could have crowded in to the rehearsal with me. I sat at the back of the auditorium, uh, so I wasn't even in front of the choir to hear the full force of their voices together. And I'm telling you, they brought me to tears about a half a dozen times. And this was just a rehearsal. Wes Walterman, who's the director of the choir, uh, has chosen some of the most beautiful music. The children's choir sounded, I mean, it was just, it was remarkable. And I wish you had the opportunity to meet some of the people that make up the choir. They are the stars of the show. Now, some of us who are soloists, we show up late in the process. They've been rehearsing for months and we get a chance to lead a song or two, but the real stars of the show, the choir, and the 300-plus voice choir is outstanding, and the music selected is incredible. So wanted to uh, remind you that this year it starts the weekend before Thanksgiving and straddles the following weekend, which is Thanksgiving weekend. That's different from what is typically the case, and I can't tell you how many times I hear from people who say, oh, yeah, I'm planning on going to the singing Christmas tree, only to be told... Uh, sorry, that closed last weekend. So make note of the dates this year. Uh, it will be at the Keller Auditorium next weekend and then the following weekend, which is Thanksgiving weekend. I also want to let you know that Portland Singing Christmas Tree, which is coming soon, uh, is giving away some free tickets. You can enter to win online a family four-pack of tickets to see this incredible choir with a few other people sprinkled in. And the KPDQ day is Friday, November 22nd. Yeah, that's coming right up. It's 7.30 p.m. in the evening and at the Keller Auditorium. You can enjoy a night of um, holiday music with the family and I think be thoroughly blessed and impressed. By the way, you can enter to win once a day. So you can enter once and then tomorrow again and then the following day right up till the 17th. Uh, So head over to kpdq.com or your mobile app for your chance to win. You can also contact the Singing Christmas Tree if you want to purchase tickets and maybe invite someone who might not be uh, interested in going with you to church, but might be interested in a great holiday uh, presentation. So please make a note of it. Taking a look at some of the uh, the day's news, uh, the battle between House Democrats and Republicans over the list of witnesses for public testimony as part of the ongoing impeachment inquiry that goes public tomorrow. 
uh, may be a harbinger of the partisan rancor that awaits the hearings that will come to television screens nationwide. House Republicans over the weekend submitted a list of witnesses they would like to call for public testimony during the impeachment inquiry. That list included uh, Hunter Biden, son of former Vice President Joe Biden, his former business partner, Devin Archer, former National uh, Democratic National Committee consultant Alexandria Chalupa, and, and uh, the anonymous whistleblower who's complained about the president's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky led to the impeachment inquiry, at least this latest iteration of it. House uh, Intelligence Committee Chair Chairman Representative Adam Schiff, uh, who runs the inquiry, was quick to reject all of the GOP's requests to have their whistleblower testify, citing protection laws and stating that other witnesses' testimony had already been more substantial or substantive than uh, what was stated in the complaint. In an interview on Sunday Morning Futures, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham accused Schiff of not caring about the truth and said impeachment efforts will go nowhere unless he calls the anonymous whistleblower to testify. For his part, the president over the weekend called for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, and Adam Schiff to be called as witnesses and said he would likely release a transcript of a second phone call with Zelensky this Tuesday. Well, the fireworks begin tomorrow. A Mormon teenager who walked 14 miles to get help for his siblings who were attacked by Mexican drug cartel gunmen recalled how his mother warned the family to get down before she was fatally shot last Monday. Get down right now were her last words. Uh, Donna Langford, her name, her eight children, two of which ended up dying, 13-year-old Devin Langford, told ABC News and several other media outlets in an interview uh, that aired. Devin told the network his uh, mother began to pray as the cartel members carrying long guns and wearing vests approached the family. And video posted uh, online show police in Hong Kong apparently shooting a protester in the stomach at close range during the Monday morning rush hour commute. The video, which was posted on Facebook by online video outlet Cupid Producer, showed a police officer collaring one protester and then seemingly shooting another who approached. The apparent shooting was likely to inflame further demonstrators who have been grieving after a student activist who fell during an earlier protest succumbed to his injuries on Friday and police arrested six pro-democracy law makers over the weekend. House Republicans will call Hunter Biden. Okay, no, they won't. (laughs) They're going to call, but he won't be there. There's a report. Ukraine's military aid was finally released by the State Department days before the president uh, claimed he released it. And Elizabeth Warren is played to nearly an empty hall, which apparently is a big deal. Representative Peter King is one of several Republicans, four senators and 17 other House members who have announced plans not to seek reelection. It wasn't me. That's what the alleged ABC whistleblower uh, says, denying that she leaked the video after having been fired. And Facebook and YouTube have blocked the spread of the whistleblower's name and photo, even though Adam Schiff's committee published the man's name last week. And the U.S. will leave up to 600 troops in northern Syria to prevent ISIS resurging, according to top generals there. Well, top Republicans serving on panels involved in the Democratic-led impeachment inquiry into the president pinned a memo to GOP members on those committees outlining key points of evidence from the closed-door inquiry ahead of public hearings slated to begin tomorrow. The memo to the GOP members of the House Intelligence Committee, House Oversight Committee, and House Foreign Affairs Committee outline arguments in defense of the president. They make the case that Democrats failed to present any evidence of quid pro quo in the president's July 25th call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. They say Trump had a deep-seated, genuine and reasonable skepticism of Ukraine and U.S. taxpayer-funded foreign aid due to the country's history of 
uh, pervasive corruption since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Conservative radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh has warned Trump supporters to expect Democrats to employ a strategy similar to the ones they used against then-Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings last year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to wind our way down through some of the top news stories of the day, but we do need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and the time is 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. By the way, portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. Uh, later in the program, we're going to talk with Mike Howell. We'll talk about the Supreme Court that is today, has today listened to arguments in favor of and opposed to the president's decision to end DACA. We'll also talk with uh, Jeff Lucas, author of Notorious, the integrated study of the rogue scoundrels and scallywags of scripture. Hmm. Uh, returning to some of the news headlines, the long-running battle over the Trump administration's bid to end the Obama-era program for young undocumented immigrants known as DREAMers landed in the Supreme Court today with a ruling expected in the, the uh, midst of a presidential election year. In fact, right before, somewhere around June, right before that all heats up, the case puts the high court at the center of one of the most politically charged issues since the start of President Trump's term. For the administration and dreamers alike, it all comes down to the Supreme Court where Trump picks Brett uh, Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch now sit. Federal appeals courts uh, also, or I should say across the country, have rejected efforts to phase out the Obama program, Obama era program known as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA. But the administration has looked to the high court for support. Legal experts say uh, uh, look closely at Chief Justice John Roberts, who could be the tiebreaker in that case. And former President Jimmy Carter has been hospitalized for a procedure to reduce uh, pressure on his brain. Ninety-five, Carter was admitted to Emory University Hospital in Atlanta on Monday with an operation that was scheduled this morning. He was uh, now recovering quite well at 95, uh, still kicking. One of the things that he is going to miss because of this procedure necessary to uh, restore his health, he won't be able to teach Sunday school next weekend. And 2020 Democrats are planning a deportation freeze. The results would basically be open borders, according to the Washington Free Beacon. And Google is gathering health care data on millions of Americans with secret Project Nightingale. Hmm. Uh, EPA, they're limiting the science used to write public health rules, according to the New York Times. A little bit dubious. Have to read that through more carefully. And the Supreme Court on Tuesday declined to block a lawsuit brought by parents of children killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting against Remington, the firearms manufacturer that made the AR-15 rifle used in that shooting. And a judge has dismissed the president's lawsuit over the New York tax returns he does not want to hand over. And education unions in Oregon and Washington are reporting sharp declines in membership and in revenue. Israel hit by rockets from Gaza after airstrikes killed. Islamic Jihad leader and Turkey's Erdogan warns that it can release ISIS prisoners back to Europe as lawmakers seek to have Erdogan's White House invitation rescinded. On this day in history, 1948, former Japanese Premier 
uh, Tojo and several other World War II Japanese leaders are sentenced to death by a war crimes tribunal. And on this day in 1927, Joseph Stalin becomes the undisputed ruler of the Soviet Union as Leon Trotsky is expelled from the Communist Party. On this day in 2001, American Airlines Flight 587, an Airbus A300 headed for the Dominican Republic, crashes after takeoff from New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport, killing all 260 people on board and five people on the ground. And finally, on this day in 2013, an international panel of architects announced that the new World Trade Center Tower in New York would replace Chicago's Willis Tower as the nation's tallest building upon its completion. Well, House Intelligence Committee uh, Chairman Adam Schiff set the stage for the first public hearing as part of an impeachment inquiry by vowing to keep questions at Wednesday's leadoff session focused on Ukraine controversy and an implicit shot at Republican members who have signaled an interest in turning the tables on Democrats as they defend President Trump. Now, the Republicans' uh, guest list has all but been uh, rejected by the chairman, Adam Schiff, so Republicans will not be weighing in with guests they think might be favorable to their view. Uh, It's important, um, says uh, Schiff, uh, as part of a memo and letter to colleagues on procedures for the open hearings, open in that the public can see them, not open in that it's bipartisan and both sides have equal opportunity to um, shape how it uh, how it functions. He says it's important to underscore that the House's impeachment inquiry and the committee will not serve as venues for many members for any members to further this the same sham investigations into the Bidens or into debunked conspiracies about 2016 U.S. election interference that President Trump pressed Ukraine to undertake for his personal political benefit. So Schiff, who is essentially the prosecutor, has already drawn conclusions as to what's valid. And will be permitted. Notably, he cited rules for the investigation that would keep it focused on alleged attempt by the president to seek politically advantageous investigations from a foreign government and whether he sought to cover it up. The first hearings in the public phase of the impeachment inquiry will feature testimony from State Department official George Kent and top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine Bill Taylor on Wednesday. Later this week, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch will appear. The House's inquiry into whether grounds exist for President Trump's impeachment, which is a foregone conclusion, it seems to me, has been and will continue to be a sober and rigorous undertaking, Schiff wrote to both Democrat and Republican members of the committee, vowing that the public hearings will adhere to House rules governing the impeachment process and that participants will be treated fairly and with respect, mindful of solemn and historic task before us. Uh, Schiff outlined some of the rules, including that members not assigned to the Intelligence Committee are not permitted to make statements or question witnesses, but are allowed to sit in the audience. There will be equal time for himself, ranking member Devin Nunez, to make opening statements, and there will be five-minute questioning segments for both parties. Of course, they're questioning witnesses that are only approved by one side of the aisle. The formal rules approved, approved rather by the House last month also gave Republicans the ability to subpoena witnesses. They sent over an extensive list if, uh, of requested witnesses over the weekend, but the Democratic majority has the final say. And while Schiff says they are reviewing the list, his statements Tuesday signaled he would not be inclined to entertain witnesses or questioning that would shift focus away from what he believes is important to the hearing. Republicans, though, have shown an interest in digging deeper into allegations against the Bidens, which is what prompted the uh, president's request to Ukraine in the first place, eventually triggering the impeachment probe. And Trump's now famous July phone call, he pressed Ukrainian President Zelensky to launch investigations into corruption involving 
um, Hunter Biden's role in the Ukrainian natural gas firm's board and Joe Biden's role in ousting a prosecutor looking into that firm. Over the weekend, Nunez House Oversight Committee ranking member Jim Jordan and Foreign Affairs Committee ranking member Michael McCall listed Hunter Biden as one of the numerous witnesses they'd like to call for hearings. They also sought former Democratic National Committee consultant Alexandria Chalupa in connection to allegations of Ukraine election meddling. In his memo, Schiff stated that the committee is evaluating the minorities requested witnesses and will give due consideration to witnesses within the scope of the impeachment inquiry, which they have defined and narrowed. Now, Schiff said that the parameters of the investigation include questions about whether Trump pressured Zelensky to investigate the Biden family business dealings in Ukraine for personal political interests, but not whether or not corruption involving the Bidens is relevant to why the president would have made such a request. Whether Trump rather withheld withheld military aid to Ukraine to advance his own interests and whether he and his administration sought to obstruct, suppress or cover up information to conceal from Congress and the American people. Schiff has already denied the Republicans proposal to have the whistleblower appear as one of those witnesses. Meanwhile, on Monday, top Republicans on impeachment-related committees sent their own memo to fellow Republican members outlining their strategy. Republicans said that the president had a deep-seated, genuine, and reasonable skepticism of Ukraine and U.S. taxpayer-funded foreign aid due to the country's history of pervasive corruption. In fact, uh, Joe Biden himself, while vice president at one point, uh, said that they would withhold aid unless a certain prosecutor was let go. And the drama continues. And House Intelligence Committee uh, chairman uh, rejected the request. Well, I won't even go into that. Our time is running out. Former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley blasted former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, recalling a private conversation where they defended resisting President Trump, telling her they did so out of necessity. Haley told CBS News uh, Evening News anchor Nora O'Donnell that she did not appreciate having the former officials confide in her, as she described in her new book, With All Due Respect. Instead of saying that to me, they should have been saying that to the president, not asking me to join them on their sidebar plan. Haley said that the two men confided in me that when they resisted uh, the president, they weren't being insubordinate. They were trying to save the country. And how Tillerson went on to tell me the reason he resisted the president's decision was because if he didn't, people would die. Haley, however, was not impressed, saying it shouldn't have been go tell the it should have been rather go tell the president what your differences are and quit if you don't like what he's doing. But to undermine a president, a really very dangerous thing to do. And it goes against the Constitution. It goes against what the American people want. And it was offensive. Haley is Uh, championing her latest book. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 37 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Mike Howell. He is a senior advisor for executive branch relations uh, at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the Supreme Court's hearing arguments in favor of and opposed to the president's decision to end DACA. It's more a, a question of the procedure rather than the content, but we'll talk with him about that. We'll also hear from Jeff Lucas, author of Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture. All of that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, the former MSNBC contributor has, t- has uh, tapped 
uh, has been tapped by Representative Adam Schiff to question Ukraine envoy Kurt Volker during the congressional hearing on Thursday. Officials uh, uh, are saying uh, the Daniel Goldman, a former legal analyst for MSNBC, posed multiple questions to Volker during Thursday's closed door interview. Um, as well, payroll records from the U.S. House of Representatives show that Schiff hired Goldman in January of 2019. News reports from last March indicate that Schiff named Goldman as the director of investigations for the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Schiff has used his uh, perch as chairman of that committee to investigate and spread debunked conspiracy theories such as as Russia collusion about President Trump. Uh, Former special counsel Robert Mueller confirmed earlier this year that his investigation found zero evidence of treasonous collusion between the uh, Russian government and the campaign to steal the election. But nonetheless, investigations into other issues are continuing. And broadcast news has been more hostile than normal toward the president, if you can imagine that possible since the impeachment inquiry began began rather according to a new study the media research center analyzed all coverage of the president and his administration on abc's world news tonight cbs's evening news and nbc's nightly news since the president took office in 2017 mrc editor rich noise he noted that coverage of trump has been more hostile than normal since september 24th when the house speaker nancy pelosi announced the start of the impeachment inquiry out of the 684 evaluative comments and Included in these broadcasts, a whopping 96% have been negative versus a meager 4% that have been positive or neutral. To determine the spin of news coverage, the MRC Media Research Center examined all explicitly evaluative statements about Trump and his administration from reporters, anchors, and nonpartisan sources such as experts or voters. The study indicated that ABC, CBS, and NBC evening newscasts have featured 398 minutes of coverage related to the Ukraine narrative, which represented more than six. 60% of all Trump administration news since Pelosi announced the start of the inquiry. With virtually no chance Senate Republicans will vote to remove the president from office, House Democrats' drive for impeachment is more likely aimed at creating a deluge of negative daily headlines, hoping to cripple the president going into next year's election. If that is indeed the goal, then the three broadcast networks are doing everything they can to help achieve that partisan objective, Noyes wrote. A Noyes MRC study also indicated that 59% of impeachment coverage has been based on anonymous sources. Impeachment coverage has been 95% negative, while news of withdrawing U.S. troops from Syria was 98% negative, according to the study. While the impeachment news has been um, uh, has not been friendly to the president, the MRC indicated that all the negative attention actually could harm the Democrats seeking to unseat the president in 2020. TV's heavy coverage of impeachment has essentially smothered coverage of the Democratic presidential race, race rather, which drew a meager 110 minutes of coverage during these six weeks. Barely a third of the, the airtime granted to the 2016 campaign during these same weeks in 2015, Noise went on to say. Well, a newly filed complaint to the intelligence community, uh, I should say, yes, intelligence community inspector general or ICIG, alleges that the whistleblower whose allegations touched off the House Democrats impeachment inquiry may have violated federal law by indirectly soliciting more than a quarter million dollars from mostly anonymous sources via a GoFundMe page. The complaint, which was filed last week, alleged the donations from roughly 6,000 individuals clearly constitute gifts to a current intelligence official that may be restricted because the employee's official position pursuant to 
um, uh, statutes, which I won't bother giving you the references to. To date, the GoFundMe has raised $227,000. The complaint also raised the possibility that some of the donations may have come from prohibited sources and asked the ICIG to look into whether any foreign citizen or agent of a foreign government contributed. Uh, the law firm representing the individual reporting the allegations is closely regarding the identity of their client, though um, news outlets have been told the individual is the holder of a top secret SCI security clearance and has served in government. I have not seen anything on this scale. Anthony Gallo, the managing partner of Tully Rinky PLLC, referring to the fundraiser. It's not about politics for my client. It's whistleblower on whistleblower. And my client's only interest is to see the government ethics rule uh, are being complied with uh, government wide. Now, how the whistleblower will benefit uh, personally is not clear. The whistleblower's attorneys have called the GoFundMe as a way to help support the intelligence community whistleblower raise funds. And the GoFundMe uh, page itself states that a U.S. intelligence officer needs your help in the form of a crowdfunding effort to support the whistleblower's lawyers. Uh, the fundraising page claims that donations will only be accepted from U.S. citizens, but that the majority of GoFundMe donors to the whistleblower's campaign were not named. And legal experts say that the ICIG likely would need to subpoena the website to obtain more information on their origins. It's whistleblower on whistleblower. I'm not sure what that means Either, But nonetheless, that is currently being investigated. Well, much of the attention on House Resolution 660 adopted by the House Democrats on Halloween to advance the impeachment of the president has failed to note the significant differences with resolutions authoring previous uh, or author rather authorizing previous presidential impeachments. Two writers on the um, Lawfare blog, for example, claim that H.R. 660 incorporates a structure similar to what was in place for the Clinton and Nixon impeachment proceedings. Simply placing the resolutions side by side show that that's, well, false. First, the previous resolutions authored uh, authorized those impeachment inquiries at the outset. This one simply says carry on to committees that began investigating weeks earlier. Second, the previous resolutions authorized only the Judiciary Committee to investigate whether impeachment grounds exist. On September 24th, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi unilaterally told six different committees to investigate without any rules or procedures. Third, House Resolution 660 sets procedures for public hearings in only two of the six investigating committees. The others are named in the resolution, but told simply to continue their ongoing investigations as part of the existing House of Representatives inquiry. This apparently means that the other four committees can continue operating in secret using procedures they make up as they go along. Fourth, the resolution creates a structure for subpoena authority in the Intelligence and Judiciary Committees very different from what was in place for the Clinton and Nixon impeachments. On October 8th of 98, the House adopted House Resolution 581. Again, this is in 1998, granting subpoena authority to the chairman and ranking members, uh, ranking member rather, uh, acting jointly. If either declines to act, the other may act alone after bringing the matter to the full committee to decide whether such authority shall, in fact, be so exercised. House Resolution 803, adopted in February of 1971, included the same provision for the Nixon impeachment. The structure for subpoena authority in House Resolution 660, the one currently uh, guiding the um, House committees, is the opposite. It is not directed at uh, both the majority and the minority. In fact, it does not use the word jointly at all. Instead, the ranking minority member must have the concurrence of the chair to exercise subpoena authority, the singular 
individual, but not vice versa. If the chair declines to concur, the ranking minority member must bring the matter to the committee for decision. In other words, the chairman can act unilaterally while the minority always needs the majority's permission. Fifth, House Resolution 581 explicitly said that after committee approval, the ranking minority member can exercise subpoena authority acting alone. House Resolution 660 delegates any mention of the ranking minority member actually exercising subpoena power, saying only that he or she may refer the matter to the committee. As uh, if this uh, significant departure from past impeachment procedures were not enough, there are even more radical developments brewing in individual committees. And while the resolution presents the Intelligence Committee as taking the lead, the Judiciary Committee has made its own move. Cherry, uh, Chairman Jerry Nadler, a New York Democrat, has released the committee's own impeachment hearing procedures pursuant to House Resolution 660, but falling outside of it. These procedures appear to allow the president's counsel to attend and participate in any Judiciary Committee hearings, but there's an enormous caveat. One section states that Nadler can impose appropriate remedies if the president unlawfully refuses to make witnesses available or to produce requested documents for any of the six investigative uh, committees. And these remedies include denying specific requests by the president or his counsel under these procedures to call or question witnesses. So, again, it's not even handed. It's not nonpartisan. It's not balanced. It's something quite different. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next hour of the program, we'll hear about the Supreme Court, which heard arguments earlier today on the president's efforts to um, end DACA and whether or not the procedure he chose to do that is constitutional. We'll also hear about the Rogues, Scoundrels, and Scallywags of Scripture with Jeff Lucas. His book is titled Notorious. Representative Peter King, a Republican out of New York, the powerful 14-term congressman who once chaired the House Committee on Homeland Security, announced on Monday he will not seek re-election in 2020. King, in a statement on Monday, said his prime reason for retiring was that after 28 years of spending four days a week in Washington, D.C., it's time to end the weekly commute and be home in Seaford. Uh, this was not an easy decision, but there is a reason for everything, and Rosemary and I decided that, especially since we are both in good health. It is time to have the flexibility to spend more time with our children and grandchildren, he said. My daughter's recent move to North Carolina certainly accelerated my thinking, end quote. Well, the 75-year-old congressman said he uh, his decades in Congress have been an extraordinary experience. He currently serves as a member of the Homeland Security Committee, which he served as chair from 2005 and 2006, and again from 2011 to 2012, is a ranking member of the Subcommittee on Emergency Preparedness and also serves on the Financial Services Committee. Politically, he went on to say, I will miss the energy and dynamism of a re-election campaign, especially since my polling numbers are as strong as they are, uh, as strong as they've ever been, and I have uh, more than a million dollars in campaign funds. He said he will continue to be active politically. He added in the coming weeks and during the next year, I intend to vote against President Trump's impeachment and will support the president's bid for re-election. King is one of several Republicans, four senators and 17 House members who have announced plans not to seek re-election. Meanwhile, former President Jimmy Carter was hospitalized for a procedure to reduce pressure on his brain as a result of falling several times. The 95-year-old former president was admitted to Emory University Hospital in Atlanta on Monday with an operation that was uh, scheduled this morning and took place. The statement said the pressure on his brain has been caused by bleeding due to his recent falls, plural. 
President Carter is resting comfortably and his wife Rosalind is with him. The statement concluded Carter, whose birthday is October or rather was October one, is the longest living U.S. president in history. The former president suffered injuries in a fall at his home last month that required several stitches above his brow. He also broke his hip after suffering a fall in his home this past May while readying to go a turkey hunting. The former president announced in 2016 that he no longer needed radiation to treat cancer, which had spread to spots in his brain. The 39th commander in chief served from 1977 to 81 when he was in his 50s. Carter said earlier this year he hoped there's an age limit to holding the highest elected office in the United States. And the Electoral College, as you know, is under threat from states looking to enact legislation that ignores local voters in favor of national election results, experts said uh, during a panel Thursday, responding to a wave of 15 states that have joined the national popular vote uh, interstate compact since 2016's election. They argue that the founders instituted the Electoral College to ensure stability and representation to all states, large and small. We only got the Constitution because the Constitutional Convention persuaded the states to enter into a federation agreement. Alan um, uh, Gielzo, a history professor at Gettysburg College, says federalism is in the bones of our nation, although my guess is um, many who are supporting this effort have no idea what that means. Federalism is in the bones of our nation, and I would be concerned that we can't start removing bones without the whole body collapsing, end quote. Well, the panel titled The Fight to Preserve the Electoral College featured Guelzo as well as uh, Trent England, executive vice president of the Oklahoma Council for Public Affairs, and Hans von, uh, von Spakovsky, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is a legislative partnership among states that agreed to award all their electoral votes in future elections to whichever candidate wins the national popular vote, disregarding the results of ballots cast in each individual state. The compact would take effect only once enough uh, uh, once rather enough states join to determine an election by awarding all 270 electoral votes needed to secure a presidential win. So far, 15 states in the District of Columbia have joined the compact. Lobbyists actively are looking to expand the agreement to more states whose leaders are upset by the result of the 2016 election when Republican Donald Trump won the presidency despite losing the national popular vote to Democrat Hillary Clinton. Guelzo argued that the Electoral College slows down presidential elections by design, providing legitimacy to the presidency and combating voter fraud. The Electoral College embodies a fundamental instinct of the founders, which is to say, slow down, he said, adding that the gridlock is not actually an accident. The history professor pushed back on objections to the Electoral College, including by some analysts who have argued that the current system violates the principle of one person, one vote. If one man, one vote is to be the rule, then as soon as a president loses popular support, we ought to have another vote, Guelzo says. So we could have presidential elections every six months, three months, eight months, every time there's an unpleasant tweet. Well, England based his argument on the 2000 election, when Republican George W. Bush lost the national vote to Democrat Al Gore and a recount in Florida for that state's electoral vote threatened to decide who sits in the Oval Office. This is not just going on in blue states. This is going on across the country, England said, of the movement to bypass the Electoral College. This is a serious threat wherever you live. Red state, purple state, there are people there lobbying to hijack the Electoral College. 
England said the movement for states to bypass the Electoral College without going through the difficult process of amending the Constitution gained renewed strength after the 2016 election. Grassroots activists and lobbying organizations, he said, are driving a message that misleads many voters about the facts of the current electoral system. Uh, the manager of the election law reform initiative, Von Spakovsky, turned to uh, voting numbers to argue that rural areas would be left behind if the Electoral College were abolished. The whole point of the Electoral College is to balance the state's demands for greater representation and sovereignty against the risk of what James Madison liked to, or rather likened to, call the tyranny of the majority. Looking again at the 2000 election, he warned that without the Electoral College, the chaos that voters and the nation at large experienced during the Florida recount would be extended to every state and, count- and uh, county across the nation. As candidates demanded recounts in every region that potentially could sway an election in their favor. As a result, Bon Spakovsky said the decisions of the president would be seen as illegitimate by significant portions of the nation and voter fraud would run rampant in areas unprepared to deal with it. What we've had for over 200 years with the Electoral College system is unbelievable stability. There's no reason to change that now, but change it may well, uh, given the fact that there is a um, growing uh, support Uh, for uh, this new way of dealing with our elections. So we'll certainly continue to keep an eye on that. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, a name that may be familiar to you, has written a column. It's titled, A Rabbi's Warning to U.S. Christians Toward Tradition. Um, I don't think I have time to go through the whole thing, so I don't want to start it. I'll wait and save that for another day, but it really is quite sobering, and I'll uh, revisit that at another time. I'll just mention a couple of things I want to make sure you are aware of. On November 27th, the downtown Bible class is going to be honoring Luis Palau on his 85th birthday. Uh, And uh, I want to encourage you to join them, to join us. I'm going to be there. Uh, My sister and I have uh, been asked to provide a little bit of music for that event. Um, And as is always the case with the downtown Bible class, it uh, spans a period of 30 minutes. You're in and out. You can get back to your place of work if you need to. And that will be the case for this special event on the 27th. But I want to invite you to join us as we celebrate Luis Palau's 85th birthday. We'll have an opportunity to sing happy birthday together to honor him by our presence and for his legacy to be emphasize it's just going to be a, a wonderful time to celebrate Luis Palau as well as get an update on um, his his health and uh, his progress. Tomorrow on the program, I'm going to have an opportunity to speak with uh, uh, the pastor of Southwest Bible Church and the Bible teacher for the downtown Bible class, Scott Gilchrist, um, extending that invitation and giving you some of the uh, the details and again, an update on Luis Palau. But we would love for you to join us. We'd love to pack out the uh, Portland Art Museum, where the downtown Bible class is held. Now, don't hesitate to come downtown and find a parking. You can work that all out. This is for a very good cause, celebrating Luis Palau's 85th birthday. That's at noon on November 27th uh, at the Portland Art Museum at downtown Bible class. Hope to see you there. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Well, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, the Supreme Court is hearing arguments today over the president's decision to rescind uh, the former president, Barack Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program. Well, back in 2012, the uh, President Obama was unable to get legislation passed that would have granted legal status to so-called dreamers. These are, of course, children who were brought to the U.S. illegally by their parents. So despite having repeatedly asserted that uh, he had no power to act unilaterally, he went around Congress and unilaterally enacted DACA via an edict from then Department of Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano. In September of 2017, President Trump ordered the DACA program rescinded over the ensuing six months, giving Congress time to come up with a legislative solution for DREAMers. Well, his decision was clearly an attempt to pressure Congress to act on immigration reform, including funding his border wall. Lower courts uh, populated with Obama judges were, uh, were able to derail those plans they issued in Junctions, and now the issue is before the U.S. Supreme Court. To clarify, the justices are not going to rule on the legality of DACA itself. Rather, the question is whether the Trump administration followed the proper protocols when rescinding the program. In other words, the issue is one of procedure, yet the ramifications for the program and constitutional rule of law itself are immense. Well, here to talk with us about all of that is Mike Howell. He is Senior Advisor for Executive Branch Relations at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, this can be somewhat confusing, uh, particularly when the question of DACA is not the issue that the Supreme Court is going to be taking up. Can we uh, take a look back to what President Obama did at the time, establishing this program that he had previously said he didn't have the authority to establish uh, that the uh, current president is now trying to rescind? Right. So the, the record is clear on this, I mean, from comments from the former president himself. He had no authority to establish the program, and even when rolling it out after he couldn't get anything through Congress, even Obama claimed that, you know, it's only temporary, that, you know, this was an ironclad-type status. It was only, you know, renewals for a two-year period, and that a, a, a final legislative fix was, was needed. Obviously, that legislative fix has not happened, and uh, the Trump administration, you know, ordered the wind-down of, of the program. So, you're right, the Supreme Court is wrestling with the question today as... Uh, it, whether the President Trump had the authority to wind down a program that Obama started, and that's what the justices are uh, grappling with. Well, ending the program has been a priority for the Trump administration. It's pursuing a an agenda that includes restricting legal and illegal immigration. Um, the the larger question of whether or not the previous president had authority really isn't an issue before the court uh, now. But does the current president uh, have a point in suggesting that it wasn't implemented legally in that the, uh, the former president didn't have authority. And what are your thoughts on his argument uh, then that he should not have to go through the usual protocol to rescind, which should never have been uh, allowed in the first place? Right. If, if something is made by a memo, it can you know, be rescinded by a memo. It's very hard to ignore that the program was unconstitutional to begin with. So I don't know how, on one hand, the justice could ever arrive at a decision that Trump had lacked the authority to end something that the previous president had the authority to enact. But all this being said, and, and you know, the legal arguments are pretty simple in that regard. It's, you know, does President Trump have the authority to issue a memo to do a memo? Um, but that's really not what's at play here. As, as we know, the Supreme Court and other lower courts have uh, we've seen a tendency for them not to look necessarily at the legal issues. Legal issues are just a pretext. For the larger policy question, we know, you know, without a doubt, 
where the left wing of the court on this will side. You know, the legal arguments underlying it really aren't important. They're going to get there one way or another. It's working mm-hmm. backwards from an end result. So we can discuss legal back and forth, which I think the facts are clearly on the side of the administration. But what it comes down to, and you see this by the, the plaintiff strategy today, having a DACA recipient at the table, all the friends of the court briefings that say there'll be a parade of horribles and injustice if, uh, you, you know, the, the program is rescinded. It's, it's a PR and optics issue more than a, a legal one. Frankly, I don't think the legal arguments really will have much bearing on what the Supreme Court actually does. It's, it's just a policy question. And unfortunately, the courts have swayed so far in this direction of wanting to be you know, many presidents for a day where they all get their, you know, chosen policy outcomes. So I'm more paying attention to, you know, how the conservative wing of the bench, whether they will hold up on what should be an ironclad legal defense, but these policy questions, PR and optics, they will creep in. Yeah, you actually never know. So there really are two central issues before the court. If the Trump administration's efforts to unravel the program uh, is reviewable by the court, and there's been some question about that. I mean, the court's taken it up, so apparently it is. And if the move uh, to terminate the program is arbitrary and capricious or unreasonable. Now, are those issues that the court will rule on, or are these just questions that have been circulating around this whole issue since the uh, Trump administration attempted to rescind the program? Right. The process by which President Trump rescinded it is a central question. Uh, the plaintiffs are arguing that he relied only on a legal opinion from, from Senator, uh, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, but the administration issued a subsequent memo out, outlining their concerns in response to a, another judge asking questions, basically saying, no, we have policy reasons for doing this, too. Um, so that's what they're looking at. The, the focus of the plaintiffs is saying, basically, Trump administration did not go through all the, you know, dotting their I's and crossing their T's, which, which they absolutely did. Um, and we saw that reflected in a lot of the questioning from the left-leading judges today, you know, asking questions about whether they took into account all these friends of the court briefings and, and other things that really are not under the purview of the court. The court doesn't have authority to look into what the, you know, motive or decision-making of the administration is in this regard. And we saw this in the census case. In the census case, it's all really dangerous precedent, you know, a lot laid out. Basically saying that, oh, well, we think you did it for the wrong reason, therefore we're going to you know, overturn it. That's not really a legal argument. Mm-hmm. It's more just trying to get to a desired policy. I mean, it's very dangerous. I'm worried that that could creep into uh, the court's decision making here. Well, one can hope that won't be the case. Now, however the court rules, the president will still have an opportunity to rescind DACA, putting the ball on, of immigration reform into the uh, court of um, Congress, which, of course, is distracted with other matters, or I should say matter singular. Um, is that a, a fair statement that uh, the president still has an opportunity to rescind DACA, although he may have to go through a different process to arrive at that end? Right. Depending on what the court says was the defect in him unwinding it, can always go and cure that defect. Um, there's also the possibility of the you know legislative compromise that was uh, signaled in uh, the president's tweet this morning. Uh, on, on that note, amnesty is a, is a non-starter for a lot of conservatives mm-hmm. and those who believe in the sovereignty of the U.S. I think that's going to be a big uphill battle uh, for a president who ran on opposing open borders. And we know that amnesty is a central piece of the open borders policy. It is the biggest driver for more immigration. And we saw that in 2014 when the DACA was you know, initially rolled out, uh, the 
the, the surge really started after that one. The news got out that if you brought a kid, you were good to go. And we have seen the drug trafficking, sex trafficking, child abuse that has spawned out of that terrible decision and continues to this day. And any sort of relief in this area only means more children and you know, people trafficked across the border. And it's signaled to, to others who do not respect our sovereignty that we don't respect it either. Yeah, yeah. Well, we will certainly uh, watch with great interest. My understanding is we won't uh, expect a decision until sometime this summer or next summer. Right. I think a lot of commentators are expecting Jim. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate your help. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Again, Mike Howell is Senior Advisor for the Executive Branch Relations at the Heritage Foundation. I want to let you know something. When I am in pain, it's really hard to think about just about anything else, let alone do anything productive. Whether it's knee pain, like I generally have, or general muscle aches and pains, relief becomes your number one priority. So I thought I would give relief factor a try. And what a difference a week made for me. Now, I have to admit to being skeptical, but the proof was in the proverbial pudding. Now, I want to let everybody who's in pain know that Relief Factor offers drug-free help for pain. Now, Wayne from Kansas says he suffered from lower back pain for years due to having played rugby and other sports for 20 years. He decided to try Relief Factor's quick start. Three days in, his back pain was gone. A few more days, and his foot pain was gone as well. Maybe you're skeptical like I was. So I'd like to encourage you to consider the three-week quick start well, it's just the ticket. Nineteen ninety-five. that's about 95 cents a day, less than a cup of coffee, pain relief. That's the result. You can call 800-421-7246. That's 800-421-7246 or go to relieffactor.com slash rice. Again, relieffactor.com slash rice. Now, your knees, your back, your joints will thank you. I've taken it. I'm encouraging you to try it as well to see if it might help you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear from Jeff Lucas, author of Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Now, can we learn something good from the rogues and the scoundrels and even the scallywags of the Bible? Well, my next guest says yes. In his new book, Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture, Pastor Jeff Lucas invites his readers to examine the antagonists from Scripture and to discover what we can learn from them. Notorious is a nine-week personal and group study into the stories of villains of the Bible. You know, guys like Cain, the elder brother, you know, the prodigal, Potiphar's wife, Saul, the persecutor, Jezebel. Every session has six days of Bible notes to read, and it's structured around uh, questions to help connect if you're in a group. Key thoughts for the session, scripture readings, a reflection on the Bible passages, and questions for study and discussion once you've uh, gotten through it. Well, my guest is Jeff Lucas, an author, speaker, pastor, and broadcaster. His passion is to equip the church with practical Bible teaching marked with vulnerability and humor. He's a former vice president of the Evangelical Alliance UK. He's a best-selling author of 26 books that have been translated into multiple languages. He's currently a teaching pastor at Timberline Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Joins us today to talk about his latest book, simply titled Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of scripture. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Georgian, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I have to tell you, I was relieved to find that my name wasn't in one of these chapters because, you know, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So uh, it, it does us well, I suppose, to take a look at those who are mentioned in Scripture for various reasons. Uh, tell us a little bit about your passion to equip the church with practical Bible teaching that's marked by vulnerability and humor. Now, these are not two things that one would necessarily put together. Well, Georgine, I think that uh, sometimes as Christian leaders have mistaken projecting an image with um, uh, being an example, and those are two completely different things. And so vulnerability as fellow travelers in the journey, capable of great good, as many of the biblical heroes are, and also capable, frankly, of great evil, as some of these so-called scallywags are, I think there's a a difference between projecting an image and and being uh, an example. And so some of these characters have just so intrigued me, not least because I think, um, for example, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that Israel's negative example is given to us to show us uh, how not to make the same mistakes. And I think as we look into some of these characters, we can look at the pathway we trod and avoid the mistakes that they made. We tend to be drawn to those heroes, people we aspire to be like. But this study really focuses on those who are certainly less than heroic. Um, What can we learn from them and what motivated you to focus on lessons that they can teach us? Well, I think, first of all, sometimes we, we can be quick to categorize people. They're either good or bad or sound or unsound. And when you look at some of these characters, I mean, it's difficult to find anything redeeming about Jezebel, the Cruella Deville of the Old Testament, or Herod the Great, who certainly wasn't so great. But I do think that, um, as for example, we look at Cain and Righteous Abel, that story, which frankly I found frustrating through the years as I've looked at it. Why was it that Cain's offering was refused? That seemed kind of arbitrary. But then as you dig a little deeper and consider that commentators believe it's possible that Cain, very likely that Cain was offering worship his way. Well, what a statement that is to make in our modern era when worship can be a consumer product. It can be about my preferences rather than ministering to God. And then as Christians, when we get upset about worship styles, and we're pretty Mm. good at that too, what we then do is drag God into our preferences. I don't like it. And God doesn't like it either. And so there's just one example of how an ancient story can speak to a contemporary situation. That is so wise to take a closer look, because sometimes we give the rogues a cursory reading without considering that they are mentioned in Scripture for a purpose. And there's something in their stories that we can glean that may save us from making similar mistakes. Absolutely. I mean, the elder brother in the prodigal story, obviously, he's not a historical character. He's a character in a parable that Jesus told. But right there is an example of how passion, passionate spirituality even can be so misguided. Obviously, in that situation, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, guys who prayed two to three hours a day, endlessly talked about the Torah and their interpretation of it. They were passionately sold out to what they believed was God's agenda, but they got it so totally wrong. And as we look at the elder brother in the prodigal story, there's singing and dancing, and uh, everyone's happy, with the probable exception of the fattened calf. But the older brother is outside with his arms folded, effectively singing, we shall not be moved. And we see there a portrait of how 
we can be passionate, but, but actually wrong in our passion. Uh, a solitary lesson, I believe, for all of us. Absolutely. How did you decide which antagonists to include in the study and which ones to leave out? Well, I think, um, Georgina, I, 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 it was really a, a case of uh, interest and fascination. Uh, and then just looking again at familiar stories, difficult stories as well, like, like Judas. I mean, without a doubt, his is perhaps the most difficult story in the whole study. Again, when you dig deeper, why did he betray Jesus? Well, there's the money involvement and all of that, but the, the strong possibility that Judas was frankly disappointed with Jesus. He wanted Jesus to be that military messiah that would kick out the nasty Romans, set up earthly thrones in Jerusalem. And now, as he stage manages this betrayal, he's trying to spark a confrontation between Jesus and the authorities, and, if you will, force Jesus to be what he wants Jesus to be. My goodness, I can look back over four decades of being a Christian and realize that there were times when I felt like God was someone that I could be man- I could manage, and then when I realized I couldn't do that, I was disappointed by, by, by that realization. And so, again, I think I was looking at um, digging deeper and then looking for those intriguing lessons that we can certainly apply to our own lives today. Now, again, our natural tendency is to um, study the heroes because they have character and characteristics we want to emulate. But it's important for us to study the villains as well. Um, Do we learn something different from them? Obviously, with the heroes, there are things that we want to emulate with the villains, things that we want to avoid. What do we learn different uh, about each of the two categories? Well, I think, I think that we can, we can trace destructive tendencies as we look at these characters. Michal, daughter of Saul, who was married to King David, um, she is an example of how um, offendedness, which can start so small in our lives, can grow into something so destructive. David dances before the Lord. And notice she's always referred to as daughter of Saul and never wife of David. It's like she's trapped Hmm. in that identity with, frankly, something of an abusive father. And and she's offended. And as a result of that, there is barrenness in in her life. Now, I'm not for a moment, and I'm always very careful when I talk about this, I'm not for a moment suggesting that barrenness is a result always of offendedness. And there's, there's never... Uh, a kind of always a, a cause or effect um, in that, but but how much does offendedness paralyze the church? Some Christians go to church to get offended. They're offended if they don't get offended. I think they've almost been offended <laughs> since birth. You know, they got upset with the midwife. Don't you slap me? And if if you want something to be offended about, then join the church because in our consumer culture, there's definitely something to be upset about if your preferences are paramount. But there's also hope in these stories, Georgine. Um, one of the characters is Saul the persecutor, this murderous individual who was so passionate once again and so utterly wrong. And he became the apostle Paul, the, uh, the great apostle of the New Testament church planter, gave us a third of the New Testament. And that speaks to us, I think, of the reality that wherever we've been and whatever mistakes we've made, we can change. It was it was Popeye the Sailor Man who, who sang that song, I am what I am, and that's all I am. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. This, 
this surrendering to sameness that can take root in our lives. And Saul's story says that not only can we get a name change, but we can get a heart change. The gospel is about transformation. And so, although there are lessons here about how we should not live, also there's hope embroidered in these narratives as well. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Pastor Jeff Lucas, author of Notorious, an Integrated Study of the Rogues, Scoundrels, and Scallywags of Scripture. The book is published by David C. Cook. We'll be back to talk more in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Jeff Lucas. He is an author, speaker, pastor, and broadcaster. His passion is to equip the church with practical Bible teaching marked by vulnerability and humor. He's a former vice president of Evangelical Alliance UK, and he's a best-selling author of 26 books that have been translated into multiple languages. He currently teaches, uh, is the teaching pastor, I should say, at Timberline Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. The book we're talking about today, Notorious an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture. Let's talk about the structure of the book. It is a Bible study, and it's formatted in a way that one can certainly do it on their own, but also in a group, and there are other resources that support uh, the work as well. Can you uh, talk to us a bit about the Bible study as it's formatted? Yeah, that's that's really helpful, Georgine, because um, as you say, an individual can get this, and and use it as a study, but there are also daily Bible reading notes, part of that book, so that they can follow this through throughout the nine weeks. There is um, There are discussion starters, that's kind of difficult if you're doing it by yourself, and so thoughts for consideration in the book as well. But then also there's a, an accompanying video that you can get, and that's got a drop-in teaching from like an FBI situation room setting for each of the small group Um, sessions if it's being used by a group. There's also sermon outlines and even slides that a church can take this and use this for the weekends, for daily study, uh, for small group study. So a church can take a complete journey through this together um, without uh, a lot of preparation. It's all there laid out for you. You know, I, I so appreciate that because it would be easy to read a story, read the scripture about some of these uh, rogues and scallywags and just simply come to the conclusion that, boy, I, I would never do that. I'm glad I'm not them without really going deep and recognizing what they can teach us and help us avoid doing in, in the future. So this really does allow your readers to go deep. It does. And I think um, you, you make an excellent point because sometimes um, we we fail because we don't recognize our own potential for failure. If you like, we don't do a risk analysis on ourselves. I remember um, some years ago speaking at a men's conference, Georgine, and we were talking about um, morality, sexual morality in particular. And I made the statement there, which was a bit of a stun grenade statement, and it was simply some of us have not actually strayed in our marriages, and it's not because we are especially noble or faithful, frankly, is because we haven't had the opportunity yet and we haven't yet been tested. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just think it's a good thing to know where our weaknesses, where the fault lines yes. in us are. And I'm, I'm really hoping as people um, go through this study and just say, well, that's, that's what they did. As you put it, I could never do that. <clears throat> We'd be surprised at what we could do. Absolutely. the opportunity, yeah. I mentioned it in the introduction early in our uh, conversation that I was glad to see that my name wasn't attached to one of the chapters. 
Uh, you mentioned <laughs> that the antagonists of the Bible are more like us than we would like to think. We tend to overestimate our virtue and our capacity to overcome without recognizing our vulnerabilities. And the book really helps us to put those uh, those things together. But talk a little bit about how these antagonists are more like us than we might care to admit and why it's important to recognize. Well, for example, there's a, there's a session in the book that focuses not on an individual, but the mob in Thessalonica, yes. where the Apostle Paul is preaching. Right there, we have an example of mob group think where people come to the conclusion that because everybody else believes it, therefore everybody, we must all be right in, in our collective viewpoint. Maya, what a, what a lesson for us today where we're currently finding ourselves as, as Christians living really as resident aliens, more in cultural Babylon than we might think. Uh, we find ourselves in a situation where often the liberal consensus, which which is all about tolerance, but there is not a tolerance of a view that steps outside the consensus view. And that can be difficult for us as Christians. We're basically called to be nonconformists and not to get out of step for the sake of getting out of step, but being willing to interrogate the consensus view and say, hold on a minute, just because everybody believes this and there is pressure upon us to believe it and go along with it as well, is it actually true? I think I'd need to say as well, Georgine, that leads me, if I, if I can say so, to a, to a concern about biblical literacy that we yes. have in these days. If we don't know what we believe, we are more likely to rush along with the crowd and, and bow the knee to the consensus. And so uh, just that mob, that, that um, frenzied group, can teach us something about perhaps the need to quietly, gently, respectfully break step. Let me just ask you one of the things that I'm hearing quite often with those who are followers of Jesus who believe that if I go with the crowd, then somehow I'm going to be, my message will be more accepted. And therefore compromising my values in some areas might make the good news of the gospel more appealing and yet, as you point out in this particular story, where there is a mob mentality that goes contrary to what is right and true, um, is a, a pattern that we, we shouldn't follow. Yeah, I think, I think we've got to be sure that we don't label compromise always as being a dirty word. Um, I've been reflecting recently on, on Daniel, and he's a hero, not a villain, so he's not in the book. But Daniel, finding himself in exile, there were certain things about that, including... Uh, education in Babylonian ways. Um, there were certain things that he went along with and didn't make a fuss about. And there were other things, particularly around worship, uh, where he drew the line and said, I'm sorry, I just can't cross that line. And so the story of, of Daniel and his friends involves a free furnace and a lion's den. But it's not all about ranting at the culture and saying we're different and definitely it's not about insisting that everyone around us is different. Actually, in exile, the prophet Jeremiah uh, told us uh, or taught a third way, which was pray for the, the, the blessing of God, if you will, even upon those who have, have captured you, upon your enemies. And that must have been such a shock to the mm -hmm. Jewish people. So it's not all about, um, it's always about um, making an argument about every issue. But it is having that sense of discernment and clarity. And if I can say so, even out of the Daniel story, a praying community that can help us see 
veneration of that wisdom that can help us to know when we need to stand our ground and when we need to be not quite so worried. As we mentioned earlier, the, the book is designed with resources to help groups work their way through the book and this study of rogues and scoundrels. Is there, uh, would you say there's more of a benefit in doing this study with a group of people when possible, as opposed to studying it as an individual? Um, I always think, I think that whenever we can be in a in an environment of spiritual friendship that a small group offers, that that's an excellent catalyst for, for discipleship development. And so I'm, I'm kind of crazy about small groups and really believe in them. But I'm I'm so grateful for the way that actually the editors of this have laid this out because an individual can work their way through it as well. So either opportunity is there, but always it's great to be in relationship with others and and to have the conversation because so often the conversation that is spurred is loaded with wisdom and we can benefit so much from that. Now, once again, I want to emphasize the uh, video series that consists of um, uh, sort of a companion piece to going through the book. Can you tell us once more about that and how uh, readers can avail themselves of that resource along with the book? Well, both both resources are available um, either separately or together. The idea behind this, Georgine, is that there are a lot of small groups that have facilitators rather than leaders, and with our busy lives, uh, they perhaps don't have the time and sometimes the gifting to prepare teaching to help nourish that small group. The idea behind this is you can drop the DVD into the player and there will be 10 to 12 minutes of of teaching instruction from from myself and from uh, a friend, a colleague, and that can be used um, as a catalyst for the rest of the conversation. And again, that could be used by the individual as well. And so both those resources are available either totally or together. Well, Pastor, we thank you so much for the book and challenging us to consider, as we ought, uh, those who would be categorized as rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture, lest we become rogues, scallywags, and scoundrels ourselves by uh, right. failing to uh, to spend some time studying what they can teach us. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Georgie. Appreciate it very much. Again, the book currently available as well as the video series. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, our final segment. Don't cry. No, no, no. Don't worry. We'll be back tomorrow. Okay, I'm flattering myself. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Dave Beckwith, author of I Love the World, It's the People I Can't Stand, Jonah's Journey of Brokenness and Yours. Maybe I should change the word to ours. Uh, He'll be joining us tomorrow on the program. On Thursday, we're looking to talk with a local professor, Mark David Hall. Did America have a Christian founding separating modern myth from historical truth? That's coming up on Thursday. Uh, Also, somewhere in there, we're going to talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. There's an effort to acknowledge and celebrate the birthday of Luis Palau. That's coming up on the day before Thanksgiving at Downtown Bible Class. Mark your calendars. That's the 27th. He'll uh, join us to talk about all the important details, but want to make sure that you are aware of an opportunity to just um, celebrate and honor Luis Palau, who will be turning 85 on the 27th, and the downtown Bible class is going to make much of that occasion. So Pastor Scott will join us. I believe that's uh, tomorrow. Well, the word police are at it again. It's not single, it's self-partnered. And it really doesn't make any sense at all unless you have a split personality, unless you're demon-possessed, self-partnered. 
so you can't just state the obvious, the fact that you are not married or you're not dating someone. It now has to be self-partnered. You have to be in the plural. Well, Emma Watson, best known for her long-running Hollywood Harry Potter gig, is uh, Hermione Granger, is 29, and she's single. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. It's hard to keep up with the language. Make that self-partnered. Apparently, the word single is too negative. Now, why it's negative, I couldn't tell you. It's just factual. You either are plural or you're single. I never believed the whole I'm happy single spiel, Watson said to uh, British Vogue. I was like, no, she wasn't, but she was like, this is, to- this is totally spiel. It took me a long time, but I'm very happy being single. I call it being self-partnered. I guess my question is, why would you call it that? If, um, uh, if you think it's a spiel to say I'm happy single, then make it something, make it factual. I am happy and I'm not partnered. It's, it's a fine thing. And why you have to somehow please other people? Well, great. But that's uh, uh, not to be harsh or anything. That's just kind of silly. The silly uh, thing has plenty of company, it seems. The term self-partnered appears to have surfaced from Australian healer Melanie Tani um, Evans, who blogged about the concept in 2015. That's the level of inner work you must get to to be... Um, Sure, uh, that no matter what, you are self-partnered and prepared to be true to you. That's a quote from a very wise, wise sage in the culture today, Australian healer. How glorious it must be. Um, but according to the dictionary.com, the word single means only one in number, one only, unique soul. Unique is bad, apparently, now. Memo to the word police, please stop. Now, I was talking to James, who happens to be with me right now. I summoned him in. Um, wasn't it um, Gwyneth Paltrow who recently said that she wasn't divorced, but a uh, was involved in a conscious uncoupling? Yes, that was a couple of years ago now, but yeah, conscious uncoupling. Now, why, to my mind, is that somehow better than saying that the legal process of dissolving a legal partnership uh, it can't just be referred to as divorce? Your guess is as good as mine <laughs> on that one. You know, one day when I retire, I think uh, it would be appropriate to say that for you and I, there was a conscious uncoupling. You will no longer be the producer. I will no longer be the host. That seems to make sense. We're not legally bound to one another in any way. So a conscious uncoupling might be an appropriate phrase to apply to you and I one day. Well, far the, off you know, the, the, question, the question has to be, you know, now, you know, you've been on the air with KPDQ quite a while. Yeah. You started... Early in your days, hosting a show with Lou Davies. That's true. With whom I had a conscious, conscious uncoupling. uncoupling. Does that mean since then, you've in fact been self-partnered? I, I may have been. So you've got both going on here. Wow. I'm self-partnered because I was engaged in a conscious uncoupling. Yes. Oh, that is so deep. That, I, I think I need profound. to be one of these sages. <laughs> Wow, just don't expect that I'm going to go into your office and sit at your feet and wait for you to speak. It ain't going to happen. Today, anyway. Yeah. Anyway, the language, I mean, it's almost comical, except that these people are actually very serious about it all. It's sort of sad that you can't just say, yeah, I'm I'm single. I'm I'm not dating anyone. I'm not married. And I'm happy with that. Oh, no, no, no. That's a spiel. That's a narrative. I'm self-partnered. And somehow that's supposed to sound better. It sounds confused to me, like you need counseling now. Do you think there's more than one of you with whom you are partnered? I mean, that, that, that's a 
warning sign to me. But then again, I'm just amazed at this point with some of these narratives out there that people haven't asked, you know, can we make it legal to marry our narratives? Because they seem pretty married to them. Wow. Yeah. And you're just really. I, I am dishing out the sageness. Forth wisdom today. The sageness flows from. <laughs> yeah, I won't say where it's flowing from. Hey, now. We'll leave it at that. Once again, on Wednesday, we'll talk with Dave Beckwith, author of I Love the World, It's the People I Can't Stand, Jonah's Journey of Brokenness and Yours. Right now, we are going to consciously uncouple from you, the listener, but we'll be back, partnered again, not self, but, you know, in some way, tomorrow. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.